0: Good morning, Four Corners. It is a joy and a blessing to be here this morning to worship our great God, to be able to sing these words to the Lord and to be able to sing these words in front of one another. As I've said many times, our corporate worship is a time of uh, edification and exaltation. It's a time to first and foremost exalt our God, but it is also a time to edify our brother and sister in Christ, edify our neighbor. And so we just don't know as we come together to worship who is sitting next to us, who is standing next to us, and and who looks over and sees our exalting of God and is encouraged by that, to trust in this God in the midst of whatever difficulty uh, he or she might be facing. So as I always do, I just encourage us all to sing congregationally, to all Put forth a joyful, uh, although maybe not pretty noise, but it would be a joyful noise. And it sounds nice. I mean, it really does. Uh, I don't know about my own, but as I hear you all, it sounds beautiful. This is the fifth Sunday. Uh, and my understanding is that we have the kids with us this morning, four and up in the service. So just want to welcome all of you who are here. Some of you come to the service uh, anyway. But uh, for those of you who normally are back in the kids' space, we welcome you guys with us this morning. And this is pretty fitting because today we're going to discuss Noah and the Ark. Uh, Probably not for you kids. I know you have a a sheet that you can draw on and color on. And maybe my encouragement to you would be, uh, especially for you younger kids, is to draw what it is that I'm saying. So try to try to visualize it in your own mind as we go through. Uh, this very important, and I think well known, and maybe sometimes too familiar, too familiar in the sense that we we get immune to the depth of it. We get immune to uh, to its to its freshness. It becomes kind of kind of old and, and familiar, and so we just we don't think about it with uh, with much insight or with a keen mind. We just kind of gloss over it. Oh, I know that passage. Yeah, that's Noah's Ark. That's Noah and the flood. So hopefully today it will, uh, it will be more than just something familiar. So if you will go ahead and please turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 6. And today we're just going to cover verses 9 to 22. So a fair number of verses here. Uh, verses 9 to 22. And for those of you who might be visiting with us this, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Genesis. We are going to finish the book of Genesis. Going all the way through to the end, our last series was on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, and now we find ourselves in Genesis. And just as a as a bit of a um, an introduction to why it is we're we're in Genesis, uh, it it became apparent to me some time ago that what what a church really needs is is a strong foundation. It, without a strong foundation, there really is no hope for an individual or a home or a church. And so. My desire over the last couple, of few years has been to really lay a firm, strong foundation. And uh, we, we've looked at the family, Ephesians 5 and 6. We've looked at Titus, the relationship between grace and our works, grace and holiness. And we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. This was all after coming Out of the gospel of John, which we we all know is is foundational for our understanding of who the Lord Jesus is and what the gospel is and what it means to be saved and to have eternal life. Uh, So this is just another effort, really, to lay for us a strong foundation as a church. So we go back to the ultimate foundation, which is the first book of the Bible. And as we've said a number of times, the opening chapters of Genesis really do lay a a concrete worldview foundation for us as Christians. We, we can't operate really intellectually and, and in terms of our, uh, our understanding of the Christian life, we cannot operate rightly really without understanding these opening chapters of Genesis. They set the, the pace and the trajectory for the rest of the Bible and they give us a worldview. They give our children a a worldview. So the hope is as we go through this that we're we're walking through these chapters with our kids. We're setting that worldview foundation so that anything that comes their way will be interpreted through this filter of the opening chapters of Genesis. And as I've already mentioned back in May, I went to visit my brother and his family in Kentucky. And we went to the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. Uh, Up in Kentucky, and this basically the Ark Encounter is a life-size replica of the Ark. Now there's there's room to kind of uh, interpret what the Ark would have looked like, and so this is this is kind of a a, an effort at that. And so it could be debated whether whether it looked this way or that way, but this is a this is an effort to replicate the Ark of the time of Noah. And so you can go and you can visit that both the museum and The Ark Encounter are run by by a ministry called Answers in Genesis. Some of you might be familiar with this ministry, some of you are not. And I would encourage the families in our church, all of us, but particularly those who have children at home, who are raising children in the Lord, as Ephesians 6 tells us we are to do, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, I would encourage you to make use of The many resources put out by Answers in Genesis. Particularly as you think through how to talk about creation, evolution. How to talk about uh, the ark and Noah and the flood. How to talk about those first 11 chapters of Genesis. I think that the ministry, Answers in Genesis, is a great help to all of us. And in fact, yesterday... I was just quickly reading through a chapter entitled, Was There Really a Noah's Ark and Flood in one of their answers books? So some of you might have these. There are four of those. They're called the answers books. And, and basically, they walk through all these questions. You know, the, these these questions that our children inevitably will ask, but the questions we ask, not just our kids. You know, who was Cain's wife? And, and could all of the animals fit on the ark? And all of these various questions. And just in this chapter alone of about 15 pages, they dealt with the following questions. How large was Noah's ark? How could Noah build the ark? How could Noah round up so many animals? Were dinosaurs on Noah's ark? How could Noah fit all the animals on the ark? How did Noah care for all the animals? How could a flood destroy every living thing? How could the ark survive the flood? Where did all the water go? Was Noah's flood global? Where is the evidence in the earth for Noah's flood? So my intention this morning and in the, in the following Sundays is not to go through and do a kind of question and answer of all the things you might wonder about from Noah's, Noah's ark and the flood. But I would point you to these, to these resources. There you'll be able to kind of dig a little deeper into all of these little questions that you might have. So over the last two weeks, we've been studying Genesis 6, 1 to 8, which I entitled A Sorrowful State. And so two weeks ago and and then last week, we looked at those eight verses in a two-part sermon looking at this sorrowful condition, this sorrowful state of mankind right before the flood. The reason why we entitled that A Sorrowful State is because essentially it is a condition of humanity, a condition of the earth that brought God sorrow. Uh, We read that God was sorry That he made man. He was grieved to his heart. We read in those verses. So it is a sorrowful state to the eyes and the heart of the living God. He looks upon the earth and he's grieved at the condition of humanity. And there were three things we looked at there in those eight verses. We looked at the demons. We talked about how those first four verses are are very difficult. Some of the most difficult verses in the Bible and have been stated as the most difficult verses in Genesis, where it talks about the sons of God marrying the daughters of man and the sons of God entering into the daughters of man. What does that mean? And uh, I talked about how there are two major interpretations. The sons of God are are either the, the seed of Seth Intermarrying with the line of Cain, or as I understand it, they are actually fallen angels who are intermarrying, who have somehow possessed human beings and come into the world. A demonic invasion, as one author puts it, where demons have come into the world and have been so invited into the happenings of mankind that the world is just filled with demonic debauchery. And that, of course, leads to what we Also read in those verses about the depravity. Last week we talked about the depth, the breadth, the totality, and the offense of this depravity. Could not be explained in two verses. You could not find in in a shorter, more concise way in all of the Bible, a description of the depravity of human beings. It's incredible. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart only Evil continually. I mean, all of that language to describe the depravity of human beings on the earth. And then we get the destruction. God sees, he feels, and he determines that he will blot out man from the earth. And that's where we finished last week. So at this point in Genesis, we are very much looking at a sorrowful state. And one of the things that we have seen repeatedly is that we see sorrow and sin and and a lot of, of bad news. As we're reading through the opening chapters of Genesis, there are a lot of negative things. And so if your thought of church is that you come and you just hear lots of cheery positive things that that's not the way it works when you actually read through the bible and you you work through the bible because here we've seen in these opening chapters these are tough verses and they do not describe the world in positive terms very much negatively god determines to blot out man this is a sorrowful state but but thank god for that word But as we've seen before in the biblical storyline, in the midst of sorrow and sin, hope comes crashing in. That's what we've seen. And I just want to say before I go into this a little more, I just want to say this. This really is the Christian message. That there is an awful condition for human beings. There's an awful condition that we're all born into. An awful condition condition of sin and death described by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. We are children of wrath. We're all born into this. We pursue our own ends. We do not worship God. We exalt created things. We worship ourselves. We worship stuff. We worship other people. We seek our own ends all the way every day throughout life until we die. The penalty of sin is death. We experience this death in terms of separation from God, and we experience it in terms of our own Cessation of breath. We die. We cease to live on the earth. And so this is the Christian message, is that in the midst of this death, in the midst of this sin, in the midst of this depravity, this awfulness, hope comes crashing in. That's the message of the gospel. So you can't have a gospel without this first part, because the, the hope of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the glory of Christ, does not shine. Until you paint this very dark picture. And once you have this dark picture in view. And then you put Christ there. We see how wonderful the gospel really is. How wonderful Christ really is. We love him. We treasure him. We savor him. So this idea of hope coming crashing in. We saw this with Adam and Eve, right? In Genesis chapter 3. What do we have? We have the fall. But then what happens? In the midst of that, God makes a promise that he will send a seed who will crush the head of the serpent. And then we have God covering Adam and Eve with skins, covering their guilt and their shame. A picture, <coughs> excuse me, a picture of what God will do <clears throat> through Christ. We saw this also with Cain and Abel. What happens in chapter 4? Cain murders his brother Abel. And then Cain gives rise to a godless line. That's sorrow. That's sin. That's sadness. That's not good. But then what happens? Hope comes crashing in in the form of a baby boy. Seth. And then Seth has a son. Enosh. And what does it say? At that time, men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And then we get the line of Seth going through Genesis chapter 5, showing us that in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of sin, there is this hope that comes crashing in. And we saw this move from sorrow to hope again last week in the transition from verse 7 to 8. Let me read that. This is what we looked at last week, verses 7 to 8. Listen to the the transition here. Verse 7, so the Lord said... I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. That sounds pretty bad. But then we get these words. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So what we have... At the end of those verses is this picture of destruction. It's a dark picture. And then come crashing into that is this first occurrence in Genesis of the word grace. God graced Noah. And so all that's just introduction, just getting us set up for today. That's where we pick up today. As we come to verses 9 to 22, we see the working out of that grace. God, we're told in verse 8, he graces Noah. Noah found favor with God. And now we're going to see the outworking of that grace as we go through verses 9 to 22. As the spotlight moves on to Noah and the ark. So if you will go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to read these verses from God's word. By the way, we stand out of reverence for God's word because we believe that this is ...is indeed God's inspired word. Uh, God inspired men. So men wrote it. But it is the breath of God on the page. It is God's inspired, perfect, trustworthy, inerrant word. And so we come now to verses 9 through 22. And here's what it says. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation... Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower... 2nd, and 3rd decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing... Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's uh, go to the Lord and just ask that he would bless this time in his word. Such a special time to gather together and look at the word together. I hope, I I trust that we're doing this individually throughout the week. But how special and unique it is just to be able to come together around the Bible and do it together as A body of believers as a local church. So let's pray the Lord would bless this time and that He would use His word in each of our hearts. Father, we are so grateful for the Bible. Father, we are so grateful that it is different from every other book, that other books are more or less helpful, more or less trustworthy more or less good, wise, fitting, sound. But Father, you have given us a book that is perfect and that tells us of your heart, your will, tells us of your purposes in the world, tells us of your nature, tells us of your plan of redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we are recipients of this gift, This morning as we come together as a church. To sit underneath your word. So God we ask that we would be faithful. That you would help us. To be faithful to this time. That you would help me to be faithful to communicate it. Accurately Lord and clearly. And that you would help us all to be faithful. In listening. Not just for information. But to listen to your Holy Spirit. As you take the word Holy Spirit of God. And put it in into our hearts, put it into our lives, massaging it into the fabric of our daily living, of our homes, our marriages, our parenting, of our work life and our leisure and everything, God, that your word would be our nutrition, that it would be the nutrients we need in order to live. So, Father, feed us this morning, we ask, with your word, and we thank you for this time. It's a privilege to come together, and we know that it is something that you would not have us take lightly. And so, God, we just thank you for it. We praise you for it. Would you do work in us this morning that is fresh and new? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So three things this morning to consider as we hone in on Noah and the ark. And you'll find these in the bulletin. These three things to consider. First, the man of God. Second, the message of judgment. And thirdly, the means of salvation. The man of God, the message of judgment, and the means of salvation. As we go through verses 9 to 22, I think this is what we are meant to focus in on. So let's look at these three. First, the man of God. Look at verses 9 to 10 again. Let's put these these at the front of our minds now. Verses 9 to 10. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And if you will, just sort of move your eyes down to the end of our passage to verse 22. And there we get a little bit more information about Noah. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And so, Really, as we're going through a passage like this, we're trying to determine, okay, what, what's this text about? What are we supposed to see here? I think it's very important that this passage, chapter, uh, this passage, verses 9 to 22, begins with Noah and ends with Noah. And that tells us he's really a focus here. We should we're meant. the Holy Spirit is guiding us. Just as I said in chapter 4, the repetition of the name Cain tells us to focus in on Cain. Here we're being told to focus in... On Noah, in part. We know that this is not about Noah. In fact, throughout this entire set of chapters, Noah doesn't say anything, nothing, until there's the curse on Ham's son. And we'll get there. We're not there today, thankfully. Um, but you, you don't get, you, Noah's not a big actor. He's not we're, not, we're not getting a lot of dialogue. It's really about the Lord. But the Lord himself wants us to see Noah clearly. Another thing that we're we're told by this text is that throughout these verses we get the repetition of the word ark, ark, ark. And that tells us that that is also a focus. Noah and his ark. Noah and the ark. But we get this focus on the man Noah. Here in just a few words we get a clear impression of the kind of man Noah was. Kent Hughes describes Noah as a fully dimensioned man of God. And we get Noah mentioned by the prophet Ezekiel as a kind of prototypical man of God. Uh, Noah is mentioned, and we also have there Job being mentioned, and Daniel. I and mean, You can read through the Bible, and these men do sort of rise to the surface as kind of prototypical men of God. And that is... Noah, a fully dimensioned man of God. So let's look at the details. What do we see about this man of God? We have so much, just like verse 5 gave us so much, so much verbiage about sin. It's amazing how succinct uh, the scriptures can be and just pack in so much meaning. We saw in verse 5 that we get such a a comprehensive view of sin from just a a few words. We get here such a comprehensive view of this man's righteousness or this man's character from such few words words. What do we see? First, a righteous man. If you're taking notes, I'll go through a a handful of these. So first, a righteous man. Noah is a righteous man. It's the first occurrence of the word righteous in the Bible. We should take note of that, given the New Testament's focus on righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous? It means to be innocent. It means to be in the right, it means to live in accordance with God's moral law. A righteous person is all of those things. And Habakkuk 2.4 tells us that the righteous shall live by his faith. So we know that whatever comes off of a person that can be called righteous ultimately is derivative of a heart of faith. That at the core of anything called righteous is faith, faith trust belief in god as we read earlier belief that he exists he's real god is real and belief that he's a rewarder of those who seek him and so we get hebrews 11:7 a description of noah by faith noah being warned by god concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household by this He condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So we see that if if righteousness is is to be understood as having at its center faith, then we are to understand that Noah was a man of faith. He was a man who trusted God. And we know from Genesis 15 with Abraham that God credits righteousness. He reckons righteousness. Righteousness, And then he, he creates righteousness in the heart by regeneration. So we get these two biblical doctrines, justification and regeneration. Justification is where God credits to a person's account Christ's righteousness. A person has an account that is very much in the red, infinitely in the red. Christ's account, infinitely in the black. And Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. So that when God looks at our account, it's full of Christ. That's justification. Regeneration is when the Holy Spirit comes into our heart and infuses the life of God in us. Gives us a new heart, a new trajectory. And righteousness is associated with both of these ideas. So we know that it is a gift. Packed into this idea of righteousness is gift, faith, and moral conduct. So whether we're talking about his relationship to God, he is a graced person. He's, he's been gifted. Whether we're talking about what's in his heart, it's faith. If we're talking about what's in his life, it's, it's a morality. It's a conduct that honors God's holy law. This is the kind of man Noah was. He was righteous. But we're also told here that he's a blameless man. That means he has integrity and purity. He abstains from evil. Proverbs eleven five 5 says this. The righteousness of the blameless. Listen to these words. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight. But the wicked falls by his own wickedness. So, as we look at Noah, we are to understand a man who walked a straight path. We know from the book of Proverbs... That the the wicked or simple or fool is someone who either just sort of moves from, from path to path. Just carelessly moving through life. And maybe that's how you would describe your life this morning. You really are just sort of moved by the wind. Moving from path to path. You have no aim. No purpose. No destination in life. No meaning. You're just sort of floating along in life. Or... Maybe life is just one big distraction after another. So you sit out on a course, and then you veer off to the right. You stay on that path for a while, and then you veer off to the left. Not Noah. He was blameless. In his righteousness, he walked a straight path. But we know that Noah was not perfect. We're going to get there as we see Noah in his drunkenness, passed out, much like Lot. Later on in Genesis, we know that Noah is not a perfect man. And Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Nevertheless, he was a man who walked a straight path that led to the Lord. So he was a righteous man. He was a blameless man. He was a distinct man. What do I mean by distinct? Well, it says here that he was blameless in what? In his generation. Now that's important that we don't miss that. He was blameless in his generation. In a wicked generation, Noah was different. Let me read a quote to you. From Kenneth Matthews, a commentator on Genesis. I, like, I love this quote. I think it's so telling and it really forces us to think about our own lives. He says this, Noah is a reproach to The believer who surrenders to the allurement of a sinful generation. He's a reproach. He maintains his fidelity and purity when all others have followed the pack. Maybe that's how you would describe your own life. The allurements of this life. The cares, the riches, the popularity... The comforts, the dreams, the grandeur of life is intoxicating to you and you just can't get away from him. Noah is a reproach to that way of life as he reminds us of what it looks like to be a man or a woman of God who lives differently than the world. There's the world, there's the broad way, as Jesus describes it, and then there's the different way. There's the narrow way. And Noah walked the narrow way, the text tells us. So question, and I think it's good we have all of our kids in here this morning, or all the ones who are four and above. What will we be and do in our generation? That's the question we have to ask. We can just be numb to it all and indifferent. And we can just float right on through our generation. Right? Until death. Just float on through. Passive. Just kind of occupied with whatever catches your interest. You go through the stages of life. I recently saw a book in a bookstore about a a study that was done. This has been years ago. On the stages of a person's life. Looking at the different time period. You just go through all those stages. Maybe right now you find yourself in your 50s, your kids are grown. Maybe right now you've got little ones at home. But you just go through those stages of life indifferent to who you are in your generation. Or maybe you just get tickled by all the fancies of this life, all the things of the world that just grab you and draw you in. And I think Noah reminds us here to ask the question Will we be different in our generation? Or just like everybody else in our world. 2 Peter 2 5 says that Noah was a herald of righteousness. You know what that means? That means that not only did Noah live, get this, not only did Noah live a life distinct from, different from everyone else in the world, but he also was a a preacher of righteousness, meaning that he was one who who did not keep quiet. So maybe we understand our lives to be walking down the narrow path. We understand ourselves to be to be focused on the Lord, and yet we just kind of keep quiet about sin in our world, about the things in our world that we should not keep quiet about. Noah was not quiet in the midst of a crooked generation, a wicked world. He was a herald of righteousness, the apostle Peter tells us. So he was a distinct man. He was a prayerful man. Like Enoch, Noah walked with God. So he was a righteous man, a blameless man, a distinct man. Now he's a a prayerful man. He walked with God. As we talked about last time, at its core, this is the idea of communion. Noah was a person for whom prayer was breath. As John Piper has said a number of times, prayer for him was like breathing. He was always in a state of prayer. He lived unto the Lord. He lived before the eyes of God. Coram Deo. He lived in God's presence. It's a little book by Brother Lawrence, a monk. Practicing the presence of, of God, I think is what it's called. He lived always in the Lord's presence. Communicating, communing with him. So he was a prayerful man. And then finally, I want you to see he was an obedient man. Verse 22, he did all, 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 all that God commanded him. This would, have, this would not have been easy. God commands Noah to build an ark at a time when there would not have been rain, most likely. At a time when such a massive structure would have been an anomaly, At a time when the world was filled with evil and wickedness. This could not have been a time free of ridicule. In fact, it would have been a time saturated with ridicule. He did. He spent a century building the ark. He did all that God commanded him. This was a man who did not live according to his own whims. He did not live according to his own plans, his own judgment and discernment, his own comfort. He did not ignore God's word or pick and choose what he would and wouldn't obey. One of the most frustrating things as a pastor is to see in people's lives a selectivity with regard to obeying God. That we open up the Bible and we just say, I like this one, but this one not so much. That one applies to me. That one, not so much. We do as we please. And it's grieving To those entrusted with the care of souls. To see lives moving in this direction because of disobedience to the Lord. Noah reminds us of the call to obedience. But lest you think this is just sort of moralism. Some kind of, see, let's be like Noah. And so you leave here this morning and the message is, be like Noah. No, that's not the message. But the Holy Spirit has put this here for us to reflect upon. So we must see the morality of Noah. It's very clear. But there are two overarching things about Noah that we must see. First, Noah is a man who evidences grace. That's the big thing we have to get. He is not a man who just worked really hard and did really well for himself. And so God spared him. He's a man who evidences grace. And he is a man who escapes judgment. And here's what we need to see with all soberness this morning. This is the kind of person who has grace. Do you hear that? This is a picture of a graced person. We're meant to see that. Not a disobedient person, not a prayerless person, not a person who follows the broad path of the world or who embraces evil, rejects the straight path. No, we're meant to see that these are the evidences of grace. So as the Bible frequently tells us, as the apostles tell us, examine ourselves. Let's examine ourselves this morning. Does Noah's life look anything like our lives? Does this sound anything like our lives? Because if it doesn't, That's a problem for us. That should be a problem for us. We're meant to say, Lord, fall on our faces. God, my life is in shambles. I'm a wreck. I don't obey you. I don't pray. I don't feel like I even know you. And to repent and seek God's face. To find him. To ask for his forgiveness. To ask for his sanctifying grace. So Noah is a man who evidences grace. He's a man who escapes judgment. Jesus tells his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Noah is quite literally presented as a man who does not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. Look at Noah's life. Paul says, imitate me. And I think he would also say, imitate Noah. And this brings us to our second point, the message of judgment. Look at verses 11 to 13. 11 to 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth. And behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Here we have a repetition and an expansion of what we've already covered in verses five to six with the breadth, depth, totality and offense of sin and depravity. Sin dominates the world and God will destroy it. That's a summary of what we have in these verses. But here we have two unique features or two new features as we've come out of our last passage, which this really is a reiteration of what we've already covered. But there are two unique features that we should focus in on as we look at the details of these verses. And the first new feature... Is that these verses give us greater detail about the state of the world. And and that, that comes in the form of two words. Two words. The first word is violence. We haven't encountered that yet. We've just been told sin was everywhere, sin was at the core of the person, and it was everywhere. But now we're being told that this is a violent world. There's specificity here. Violence has overtaken the world. This is the height. Of not loving one's neighbor. Jesus says that the whole law and the prophets. Everything that God would teach us about life. Is boiled down to what? Love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. And violence is really the most extreme version. Of not loving our neighbor. If we think about it. It is where we just. We don't just disregard or neglect our neighbor. We don't just speak slanderously of our neighbor. We harm our neighbor in real concrete ways, murdering, killing. This is the world of Noah's day. And think about it for a second. I mean, wouldn't Noah at times have been tempted to fear for his own life? I mean, this is a man who's walking a righteous path, uniquely so. And this is a man who is preaching that righteousness. He's heralding that righteousness. He's witnessing to the way of God, to everyone he meets. Maybe as he's building the ark, there are people helping out. And he goes over and sort of helps them out a little bit and says, Hey, uh, do you you know of this God who made us? Let me tell you of him. Let me tell you of his way. In such a state, of course, people would not have liked Noah. Noah. And in a violent world where violence was rampant, surely many would have wanted to kill Noah, but God kept him safe. God provided for Noah. So we see a world filled with Cain like atrocities. Remember Genesis 4? Cain murders his brother Abel. Imagine that little scene there in Genesis 4 on a mass scale. That was the world of Noah's day. A world filled with Cain's. A world filled with Lamech's. Vengeance, murder, boastful bragging in the ability to take life. This was the world of Noah. So we see violence. We also see this idea of corruption. This is ironic because this word that is repeated throughout these verses means ruined or destroyed. So this is the irony of it. The world at that time was in a state of corruption, i.e. in a state of ruin, It was in a destroyed state. So, what this means is that God is destroying, catch this, what man has already destroyed. In case you're tempted to look at the flood and say, now that can't be a good God, destroyed everything men, women, children, everything that breathes. We're told here, That this world was already destroyed by man. God just cleaned the plate. As we looked at last week. He wiped the filth off of the dish. As we see the word wiping out. Blotting out. He cleaned it off. And started again. With Noah and his family. So that's the first new feature. Is that we have these details. Violence and corruption. The second new feature. Is that God delivers this message directly to Noah. I want you to see this. God delivers it directly to Noah. It is as though God speaks to Noah face to face as he does later with Moses. Remember, Moses goes up on the mountain and and Moses sees the Lord. And his face shines with the glory of God because he was with God face to face. We have here a picture of Noah communing with God face to face. God speaks to Noah as a friend. And shares his plans and intentions. This message of judgment is graciously given to Noah. We see this throughout the Bible. But I want to give you two illustrations of what I'm trying to communicate here. About the relationship between God and Noah. We see this with Abraham. Remember when the angels and the Lord. A pre-incarnate Christ there I think. We have the Lord there in physical form with two angels. And they come to the tent of Abraham. And what does God do? Say before he destroys uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 18, 17 to 21. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? God did not hide from Noah what he was about to do. So he says this of Abraham. Shall I hide from him what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And then God tells Abraham what he's about to do. I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And then what do we have with Christ and his disciples? Those wonderful words in John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant... Does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. Noah here is presented just as Jesus' disciples. And just as Abraham. As a friend of God. And so that prepares us for what we're going to go on to see with the ark and salvation. But let me just pause for a moment before we move on to that. And ask this question. How are we to understand this message of judgment today? Okay, God judged the world in the time of Noah. What does that matter to us? What does that mean for us today? How do we process that mentally? Well, Peter actually tells us what we should do with this information. He tells us how we should uh, apply it to our own thinking. Peter tells us in Second Peter that this past judgment should draw our minds to the reality of future judgment. And he goes on to say this in Second Peter 3, verses 11 to 12. He says this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. He's talking about the world. God's going to destroy the world again, not with water, but with fire. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? This is not moralism. This is the life of Christ through the person of God, through the man or woman of God. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Let me ask you this question. Why would you cling tightly to a world that will be destroyed? That is the folly of so many of us. We cling to things that will just be dissolved, burned up, evaporated, gone. I love the words of 1 John 2.17. This is one of the first verses I ever memorized as I was a young Christian. These words just have always stuck with me. And I, I pray for you kids that you would hear these words and these words would govern your life. That you would see these words always before your eyes. You'd go home this afternoon and say, let's memorize those words, mom and dad. 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This world will be destroyed again for good. But the person who clings to God, not a created world that will be dissolved, but a God who is eternal, who's infinite person who clings to that God will abide forever and ever and ever and ever. But where we find judgment in the Bible, it's always the case. God's not just the judge. He's the Savior. And where we find judgment in the Bible, we also find salvation. That leads to our final point as we finish up this morning. Verses 14 to 22. The means of salvation. So we've seen the man of God. And now we come. We've seen the message of judgment. Now we come to the means of salvation. Look at verse 14. Verses 14 to 22. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And we're not sure what kind of wood this was. Maybe cypress. But it's gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch to keep it waterproof. Waterproof. On the outside, this is how you are to make it. The length of the arc three hundred cubits at least this is at least four hundred fifty feet. If you take a cubit to be eighteen inches, which is the uh, the distance between the fingertips and the elbow that 's eighteen inches now that 's on the lower side, seventeen inches is on the lower side of a cubit. It could be all the way up uh, to twenty or a little more inches, which means the arc would be longer. And so uh, if you go to the ark encounter, they actually put it over 500 feet, taking it to be a cubit that was about 20 inches long. But if you just take the lowest standard cubit, 18 inches, then it would be 450 feet. It's breadth 50 cubits. That means 75 feet wide and its height 30 cubits or 45 feet tall. Make a roof for the ark. And finish it to a cubit above. This would have been a space, as I say, about 18 inches at the very top. That would have provided light and ventilation at the very top of the ark. And set the door of the ark in its side. One door. One door. Just as they entered through one door, so do we. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. So this is not water animals. These are animals on land, below the heaven, above the water. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark, To keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds. And of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And then again those beautiful words. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Here in these verses, Noah is told specifically how God intends to destroy the world. Verse 17, a flood of waters. We've, we've already, Noah's already been told that God is going to destroy the world. He's already been told the what. But now God explains to him the how, a flood of waters. And if this is the form of judgment... It should be no surprise to us that the form of salvation will be an ark. So what is an ark? Maybe you're thinking in your mind ship. Maybe you're thinking in your mind some kind of just wooden structure or vessel. But the word ark only occurs outside of the flood narrative. It only occurs one other time in the whole Bible. And interestingly, it's it's for a much smaller ark. It's at the beginning of Exodus and it is the, the basket that... Moses' mother puts him into to put him in the reeds there at the water of the Nile because uh, the Pharaoh has given an order that all Hebrew male sons are to be killed or to be destroyed. And so Moses' mother puts little baby Moses into a basket and just trusts God. And of course, we know that Pharaoh's daughter comes and finds him and raises him as a prince of Egypt. And we know the story After that, But it's this little basket that is called an ark. So maybe it's just simply a word for a lifeboat in the midst of water. But this is how we are to understand it. The word uh, literally means a chest. It could also be understood as a coffin. Outside of this flood narrative, this is the only other occurrence that we have. So that's what we're left with understanding about this ark. So why am I calling this ark the means of salvation? As we close this morning... We'll have other opportunities to talk about the details of the ark. But I want to I finish with this question. Why am I calling the ark the means of salvation? Well, three things. First, it's explicitly stated here in these verses that it is what will keep them alive. It says that I think twice that the ark will keep the animals alive and it will keep Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives alive. This is a vessel of life. And we know that at the end of these verses, this is also a place of provision. God will provide food there. They are to gather up the food and leave it there on the ark. And it'll be a place of life. But it'll also be a place where life is nourished. It'll be, they'll be provided for on the ark. It is an expression of the covenant faithfulness of God. This is the first time in all of the Bible that we get the word Covenant. It's the first occurrence here. And so we have these words in verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife and your son's wives with you. So here we have the ark as an expression of the covenant, the promise that God makes to Noah to be with him, to preserve his life. And as we'll find later on with the sign of the rainbow that he won't flood the world again. And finally, there's no more fitting place to conclude this morning than on this idea. The ark is very much a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. How is that? How do we have here a picture of Christ? The ark is a resting place. It is a refuge. It covers and protects from the wrath of God. Let me say it this way. This, really the way. this is sobering when we consider this. The world is made up of two kinds of people. Two kinds of people. Those upon whom the wrath of God falls. That's sobering. But that's the truth. And we forget that as we intermingle with all the nice people we know. And all the nice people of the world. We need to know there are two kinds of people. The people upon whom God's wrath falls. It's eternal judgment. And then there are those who escape the wrath of God in the refuge of the ark. And the ark is Christ alone. And I want to submit to you this morning, there is no other salvation for us. There is no other way To know God. There is no other way to be saved from the judgment of God, the just judgment of God, than Christ. Believing in Him explicitly for the forgiveness of sins. Only Christ can forgive us of our sins. Every person has sinned against God. Every person deserves death and hell, and every person will experience God's judgment apart from this ark of salvation the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only refuge against the flood. There's a flood coming for every person and for this world and only those who are in Christ. Praise God for that idea. I wonder in my mind as, as Paul was writing about in Christ. I know he had all these metaphors for Christians. The body of Christ, the temple of the living God. But I wonder if as Paul was writing all this language about in Christ, if he, if he saw the ark in his mind. We don't know. He doesn't say that explicitly. We get a hint of that in Peter, but only in Christ do we have salvation from the flood. Is Christ your hope? Or are you your hope? Is Christ your hope? Or do you just not care? There's a a phrase in Scotland when we lived there that was new to me, and I heard it all the time I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered. That just means I don't want to think about that. I don't want to fool with that. Oh, I can't be bothered. And I wonder this morning if that's you. You're just so busy with life, just can't be bothered. Friends, one day, you will be bothered by the wrath of God, apart from Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ark of salvation. We thank you for his love. We thank you for his kindness towards us and making us friends. God, we thank you that in him we will not experience your wrath. God, what a blessing. Our guilt has been removed. We are sinners, yet we are saved. We are redeemed. We are counted righteous as Christ and made sons and daughters Father, thank you for this salvation which we have in Christ. Father, I pray for any among us this morning who are not believers, who are not Christians, who do not know you and walk with you, who do not obey you and live before your face. Father, would you draw them to yourself this morning through this sermon, through your word? Would you use this feeble attempt To explain your word as a means of drawing them to know you. God we ask for your mercy to be poured out. And Father for all of us who do know you God. Would we be like Noah. In the sense that we walk with you. And we walk a straight path. And that we are different in our generation. Father for the children among us this morning. I know it's hard to listen to a sermon. It can be hard to follow. And Father my prayer is this that you would take the little seeds out of this sermon and that you would raise them up to be different in their generation for the glory and hallowing of your name. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.